So good morning from my side, and um, I really consider it a huge privilege to be here and especially present this particular passage of scripture that we're dealing with today. So I trust that you would be swept along. Um, just to remind you that we are in the Gospel of Mark, and when we started, we looked at some of the techniques and things that Mark used. And just to remind you of the significant ones for today, it's the fact that Mark wrote from uh, using the memoirs and the uh, notes and things that he got from Peter. But Mark wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what Mark wrote down, there was a whole selection of things that he could. But he was strategically instructed by the Holy Spirit to write down these particular things. And his purpose was to present Jesus to the non-Jewish world, which would include most of us. There might be some of Jewish descent here, but most of us. Mark wrote this gospel for us. And Mark used some various techniques, of which one is that he brings you into the story as an on-site reporter. And so today, I want you to do that again. Journey with me. Position yourself in the story, in the midst of it, to experience what is actually happening right here. And then he does it, and he records the response of people more than anybody else, any other gospel writer, how people respond, and you'll see it again today. And he does it not just so that you can know what they did, but he wants you to respond so can I ask you, on behalf of the one who instructed Mark to write this, has inspired it, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for six months now. It's four months actively preaching, two months over December. So what have you done with Jesus? In these past four months, this Jesus that's been presented to you, have your life changed? Do you know him better have you allowed this word to engage you, seek it out, the truth of it, and be transformed by it? That's the question. Yeah. So, we are on chapter 12, verse 13. Now, just to put you in the picture, we are in the Passion Week. This is the Wednesday of Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus' life before he gets crucified on Friday. On Monday, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And there were all these people throwing their clothes on the road and all this stuff, hailing him. So that would have attracted the attention of most of those who were presented or present in Jerusalem at the time. And remember, this is the Passover. So many from other parts of, the, of Israel have, been, have come there as well. So that's on Monday. On Tuesday, he goes and he, he chases everybody out of the temple. Okay, a huge event. So if they were not there on Monday, and they were not there on Tuesday, I can assure you by Wednesday, everybody was in the temple looking to Jesus. So the temple is not a small space. It's a huge space. It says that in the outer court, 72,000 people could go in there. That's big. Kingsmead Cricket Stadium, when it's capacity, I think it takes 20,000. Okay, it's just on the banks, but it's uh, Kings Park is, well, actually, most of Mabita can seat 70, I think if they put all the top 90, but it's like this. Remember, that's a flat surface, so it's big. You could easily say it's two Kingsmead cricket stadiums with a colonnade around, all these things. So there's huge activity there. So imagine that. That's where we are when he speaks. Now, just also to put you in the picture, what happens here is what would have happened to a lamb traditionally what the Israelites would do before the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and all that corrupted the whole sacrificial system, what they would do is they would select their sacrificial lamb, lamb to be sacrificed throughout 
that you look at the one that would be perfect to do it. Then on the Monday, they would take it to the priests to be identified or to be scrutinized or they, that they present them. Then for the rest of the week, Tuesday to Thursday, that lamb would be put through rigorous testing to see if it is worthy to be the sacrificial lamb on the Friday. <clears throat> and do you know that, so parallel this with what is happening to Jesus here, and you know that this was predicted, prophesied to happen in Daniel 9, verse 25, 26, if you work it all out, to the very hour and the day that Jesus on the Friday at three o'clock would be sacrificed. Incredible. That's what's happening here. Okay, so we're in the story. Are you there? With the crowd, listening. So here Jesus appears again in the temple and he starts having this engagement. It's the scrutiny of the religious leaders of him. Is he a worthy lamb? That's what's happening behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. So they, that's, it says later they, that is the religious leaders who've just been rejected by Jesus, parable on attendance, prove that they are rejected. They will no longer be the authority over the people of God. That's what the tenant parable is about. God's rejected them. A new order is coming. And he says, so these guys, their whole world has come fallen to pieces. And they are angry. And they want to go back to the old system. So they want to disqualify Jesus. So they sent a delegation. Sent means with the, as a representative with the authority of the one whom they was sent them. So this is how they come. And it says the Pharisees and the Rhodians. Now, you know the Pharisees, most of us? A sect of the religious leaders or the religious people, um, Jewish. But the Rhodians, who are they? The Rhodians is a, is a small sector of the Jewish community that supported the Herods. The Herods were kings, kind of puppet kings, under the authority of the Caesars to rule over provinces of, of um, Israel. They didn't have any real authority of themselves, but through cruelty and just being, you know, they, they oppressed the people. So they were hated by the Jews. And the Pharisees were the ones who hated them most. So for the Pharisees and the Rhodians to come together is quite unusual. And it is because they have something in common here. And it was a strategic setup to catch Jesus out. So it says, so they catch him in his word. Now that word catch is only used once in the whole of scripture. It's a very unique word. It's called a hopox lagavana, just a little fancy thing. Maybe you remember it. It means it only appears once. And to capture the real meaning, catch is very feeble. It is not what it says. What it actually means is violently pursue. Okay, I'm just setting the scene. So there attempt, they say the example to explain this word is that of a um, delegation of hunters trying to catch a man-eating beast, lion, tiger, whatever you want. And what they would do is they would dig a hole and then put these spikes in the bottom of the hole, cover it over, and the attempt is then to drive the beast that it would fall into that hole and be impaled by the spikes. That's the heart with which they come. So what they are saying here, you'll see now they address him as teacher is not a, a, a term of respect or honor. It is dripping with hatred, with venom. They want to see him impaled. Okay, so that's what's happening here. And it says they come to him and say, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. That is just buttering up for the kill. You know, just setting him up. He says, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
And then this is the question. So you can imagine the crowd, they're there, they're seeing. At this moment, they say, shh. You can hear pin drop, 70,000 people, because they want to know, they want to hear what is happening here, and they want to see Jesus' response. And so he says, is it right to pay the imperial tax? Some translations say taxes. It's not actually, it's specific, the imperial tax. is a tax that is only levied on those who are non-Roman citizens. So the Jews, like all of us, don't like to pay taxes, but they hated particularly this tax because it was directed against them. Okay. So he says, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or not? So now everybody waiting, the bated breath. How is Jesus going to respond? And then it says, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin that was specifically minted for the purpose of paying the imperial tax. Okay? And he says, and, look, and let me look at it. They brought the coin to him and asked, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? And I can imagine from, oh, Caesar's! They would shout, Caesar, Caesar, everybody, Caesar's, they know it. So Jesus says to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now the intention of these guys, Rhodians and Pharisees, was to trap Jesus, to impale him. So this question was strategic. They knew that if he said you have to pay it, he will lose popularity with the people which is what they wanted. Or if he said, do not pay it, that's why they brought the Rodians. So that straight away the Rodians can report them to the Herods, have him arrested and executed as an insurrectionist. But Jesus masterfully answers. But this is the question now that stunned the crowd. And he said, and give back to God what belongs to God. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So our first responses have you and have I given to God what belongs to God? Verse 18. Then the Sadducees, so now that's the next delegation of interrogators coming. Sadducees was a, a particular sect, quite an exclusive sect of religious leaders. They saw themselves as superior as everybody else, and so they are mad that the Pharisees could not trip them up. So now they come in their arrogance and pomp, and they've got something that they're going to catch them out now. So that is their intention here, okay? And what they are doing is they're trying to actually make a fool out of Jesus. They come with an argument to try and prove to him that what he is representing is so ridiculous that it, even to, to kind of accommodate the thought of it is just stupid, you know? So this is what they say. Now, the, Pharisees, the Sadducees, just to explain quickly, they, they and the Pharisees also do not like each other. They were always at uh, loggerheads with one another. And it is because the Pharisees believed in the sovereignty of God over the events of the world, whereas the Sadducees believed that everything that happens in the world is a direct result of man's exercise of free will. Secondly, the Pharisees believe in the existence of a spiritual realm with demons and angels, whereas the Sadducees denied it. Thirdly, the Pharisees believe that the whole of the Old Testament, as we know it, is the inspired word of God, 
whereas the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They said that was given through Moses to God, to the people, and that only is. So they base everything they believe in on those first five books, which is significant because you'll see the way Jesus answers them. He takes it from there, okay? He showed them. So, and the last thing is, as a result of them saying that nowhere in those five books does it refer to a life after death, there is no such thing as a resurrection, whereas the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. So, let's read. This teacher, they said, Moses wrote to us, again, with sarcasm, addressed them as teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offsprings for his brother. So they're quoting the Levite law, which is the law that Moses gave them for the continuation of a family name and inheritance. Okay, so that's the purpose of this. But they take it to the extreme. And you can see the sarcasm in that in it in the example that they use. Because they could have just said they were two brothers, but they say seven, which is actually also a, a mockery of Jesus, because seven was the number of God, of completeness, of perfection. Okay, so, so now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving a child, any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same for the third, or with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. So now they say, at this so-called resurrection, with all their pomp and that, whose wife will she be? Because all seven was married to her. Can you, can you sense it? Can you taste it? The sarcasm dripping from them and, and trying to trap him up. And then Jesus' response. Absolutely incredible. Because nobody would dare challenge the Sadducee on his knowledge of Scripture. They could recite it literally backwards. Their, their, their interpretation, they spend their life studying it. So you would not dare tell them they don't know the scriptures or understand it. And that's what Jesus says. So the hush in the crowd, the tension must have been palpable. It says, Jesus answered, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Now friends, before I continue, what is our response? Don't you think it would be true that 99.9% of all our issues that we have to deal with would just disappear if we truly knew the scriptures and the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Some translations actually put in here in this regard, which helps you understand it, because that's what Jesus is getting at. He is not saying that we become angels when we die. Please never, ever say that. Never, ever tell a person who's lost a loved one that God needed more angels. I've heard this. And so they took your child. That is absolute nonsense. God created the angels, created us. He can create them more if he needs more. People don't become angels. He's not saying it. He says, in regard to procreation and marriage, in that regard, we are like the angels, will be like angels in heaven. Okay? Now about the dead rising. That's where they lacked faith in the power of God. They thought he cannot do it because it is not powerful. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? So, taking the Pentateuch to prove them wrong. He says, in the account of the burning bush, God said to him, I am, not was, I am, present tense, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, all of these guys know that, that they, I mean, everybody knows that these guys have died. But what Jesus is saying, or what Moses is saying, even there, in the Pentateuch, at, at that time already, God is saying, these people died, but they have risen again. They are alive. And that proves life after death. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And you can imagine just the fumes popping out of their ears and as they, in their anger, but yet now their humiliation. The next wave of interrogation. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, just to explain quickly, there are hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. And these guys made, their, that was their pride and joy to study all those things and to expound on them so much that they wrote volumes on this, actually adding some of their own laws in there to just explain to the people, but also to exercise authority over people. So there were so many that they know they could not check all of them on people and also for themselves. So they were forever debating of which one is the most important. Because if you can say which is the most important and at least you keep that one, then you can claim some superior righteousness of your own over other people or force that onto others. So that's actually the heart behind this guy's question. He wants to know which one. If I just have to keep one, which one should I keep? Okay. And he asks. And then Jesus answered him and said, the most important one answer Jesus, is this. And then he quotes again from the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5, and he quotes what's called the Shema. Shema is a word, Jewish word for, I mean Hebrew word for hear. And it starts with hear, O Israel. And then what follows, Jews would repeat literally numerous times, I wanted to say 100, but I don't know, numerous times on a day. So they all knew this. This is something that was bred into them. They first, as they start speaking, they could recite this. And it says, hear, O Israel. Now here, I just want to make an statement. If the, I'm still okay. If, um, if your Bible says Lord, capital letters, all four of them, that is correct. Because that is what in the Deuteronomy text is. And it is vitally important that we see it. It is not capital Lord, uh, L, lowercasing. Because the capital letters is Yahweh. And Yahweh is not a title, it is the name of God. So what does your name represent? Everything that you are. So everything that God is, is what he is talking about here. Okay? Very important. He says, you are, he says, the Lord, hero Israel, Yahweh, our Lord. Yahweh is one. Love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Now Jesus adds mind in there. In the Shema, is just strength. But the word used for strength implies strength and mind. And Jesus wants to say, to just cancel out all um, confusion around this and make it clear. And I think it is incredibly significant. Because to love him with your mind, you'll see as I expound this now, is important. It's an important thing that is added to him. Okay. So he says, love the Lord. So what does that mean? Love Yahweh with all your heart, first of all. Your heart is the, the inner core of who you are. It's your very essence of your being. Okay, that's what it is in the Jewish context, Hebrew context. Then it's with your soul. Your soul is your, is your emotions. 
and your will, they say, well, oh, no, actually, will is for the mind. It's in the soul, it's, it's, it's the personality, all those things captured in there. Then with your mind, and your mind is your ability to reason, it's your ability to study, it's your ability to research, it's to search out, it is to delve, it is to dig into it. And then it is with all your strength. Now, strength is your tenacity, I think, it's your endurance. I've got friends who set themselves goals, like my one friend wants to ride a particular cycle race 20 times in a row, he will go to extreme lengths to make sure that he is there. He employs every bit of energy that he has. Even when he is sick, he will, he will muster his strength because he does not want to fail in this. Strength. So I want to ask you another question. Have we done this? Before you answer it, I want to say, what is Yahweh? It's all of God. It's easy for us to love with all our heart God's love. But Yahweh, it represents the total of who God is. So it's His grace as well as His mercy. Mercy for you, you receive easily, but His mercy for your enemy. Do you love that quality of God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? It's Jesus' kindness to us, but what about his discipline? Do we love it? Do we embrace it with everything that is inside of us? And you can carry on and on and on and think through these things. They are so, the totality of who God is, that is what we are called to love. Next question is, have, have you pursued God with the whole of your faculties, every little bit of energy and power and strength that you have? to get to know him. The Bible says if we say we love somebody that we do not know, we are liars. So how can we say we love God with our total being if we do not know him? If we haven't employed our, our every bit of energy and strength to get to know him, to search him out, to study the scriptures, to read books like Isaiah and these things, to see that expression of love and and then you can truly give yourself to it with total integrity, knowing that it is with all within you. It's not saying you should only love God. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself too. And so there's love more, but, but that love for God cannot be surpassed by anything, with everything that's inside of you. That's what he's getting at here. And he's proving and saying to everyone. So I want to ask the question, if you were to say, what is the greatest sin? Put a person to it. Who do you think is the worst sinner that ever lived? Would it be somebody like Hitler? Or maybe even now you could say Putin or whatever. Would it be the pedophile, perverted person who's kidnapped a little girl, raped her, abused her, sold her into sex slavery? <clears throat> is that the worst sinner? Wouldn't the worst sin be, or the greatest sin be, to disobey the greatest commandment? Okay. Next. Then, the final verse there, I'll skip through that, but it says there, and from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So that is a significant verse, because that says, at this moment, they have got no more scrutiny. 
that they can actually put him through. He has qualified. He is the lamb worthy of the sacrifice. And that is the one that I want us to see this morning. That's my whole thing, is not to put condemnation on us, but to see the beautiful one that is worth it all. And so bear that in mind. But, but that, that is what it's saying. And because that has happened now, Jesus is now going to be answering the question that was posed to him when he drove out everybody out of the temple, when he said, by whose authority or what, by what authority are you doing these things? Remember? On Tuesday, that's what happened. And they never got the answer because they didn't want to answer his question. But now Jesus is ready to answer that very question. And he answers it with a quote from Old Testament. This quote is from Psalm 110 verse 1. It is the most quoted verse or um, Old Testament passage in the New Testament or Psalm in the New Testament. It is one of the most significant verses in all of Scripture. It is important. And it is, it is, it's called, theologians call this the session of Jesus. When you speak about Parliament being in session, that is when people take their seats of authority in the, in the place of authority to make decisions over the country. So when Jesus, the session of Jesus, is Jesus is seated in his place of authority. That is what's happening here. And it is again important to notice this, the words. It's, so I'll just read this. It says, who do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is? Remember, he has now, been, he has now identified with being the Messiah. They all know it, so they know he is talking about himself now. So he's saying, and, and they have expected a Messiah that is from the line of David, which we would see now. It's uh, throughout the Old Testament, many places. Uh, Psalm 89, Amos, Micah, Ezekiel, I can quote you many, many places. It's referred to as the son of David. We know it's the most significant term used or title used for Jesus or the Messiah. So it's there. And in Mark, he strategically only mentions it once. And that was with Bartimaeus, if you remember. He responded to Bartimaeus calling him the son of David. And that was a blasphemy for, in the eyes of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Anyway, so he says, the son of David, Messiah is the son of David. When David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, all of Old Testament is written under the influence or the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying here. Just by the way. And he declared, this is David saying, prophesying. He says, the Lord... Again, capital letters, what it should be, which is Yahweh, the name for God, the God that represents everything about who God is, that God, all authority, one the creator of heaven and earth. He said to my Lord, David's Lord, and that second term Lord is only capital L, this lowercasing, which is Adonai, which is the title of Jesus. I, I forgot to say this, a title. If people come to me as a dentist, and they want me to do their work for them. They honor my title as a doctor. And they respect that and they give themselves to that. But they know nothing about who I am. They don't honor me as a father, as a leader in the church, as anything else. They honor me as a title. Okay, that title they pay respect to. And that's why it's important with what I said before. It is not a title of God. It is Yahweh. That's all that he represents. So here again, that God, with all that he represents, now gives Jesus the title and the title is Adonai, which means sovereign Lord. So God the Father, what is happening here, it says then, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So God the Father, the, the Yahweh, is seating Jesus in the highest place of authority in the universe. That is why Jesus said he could do, that is why he did what he did. Just imagine that, friends, when he's 
chased out those people, a big space. So there would have been hundreds of Sadducees there. And you know that they had a, a temple guard. They had soldiers at their disposal. So why could the soldiers not stop them from doing it? That is the question that they asked. They didn't just ask, who gave you authority? They said, what kind of authority is it? What authority? Who gave you this? And how is it that nobody can oppose you? That nobody could do anything about it? It is a massive authority. And that is what is encapsulated in the title, Lord. And I think so often I, I catch myself use the term title, Lord, as a sentence stopper, as, a, as a, like a pause when I pray, as I think on something else. It is declaring him the sovereign over the universe. That's encapsulated in a title. <laughs> that's what Jesus is, that's what's happening here. He says, Jesus himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? You could add in their son only. That's what Jesus is saying. He is his son. They know he's come from the lineage of David. And that's why Luke and Matthew takes the lineage of two, Mary and jo Joseph, to show that he's from David. Because that qualifies him, first of all, he has to be man from the line of David to be the Messiah. But now he's saying, I am more than that. Even David knew that and acknowledged that already. And said that he would be divine as well from God. So he's God and man. Then again, the response. The loud crowd listened to him with delight. Showing that at this point, they still loved it because they, they wanted this. Everything he's done for them, they wanted him. But we know how easily they would be turned. But that is for us. So what do we do about it? The question is, have you seated Jesus in your personal life as sovereign Lord? And I, but also, do we honor him as the highest, in the highest place of authority over this whole universe? And when we pray, do we, do we direct ourselves to him? We worship him, to that God, to change us. That's the attitude with which we worship. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted and respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor the, at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Now there's a whole um, conversation going on here, but Mark strategically only wrote this because this is what he wants to know. But you can pick up on the rest of it if you read Matthew 23 and see there how he lashes out at them, tells them, warns them, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, leaders, and the whole thing, but this is for the purpose here. And then we get this interesting little piece about the widow that's gonna end here. Now, I think what is happening here is that Jesus is contrasting the faith, the hip hypocritical faith and hypocritical way of serving him with that of somebody with a pure, wholehearted devotion. If you ask yourself a question, this is the last thing, the last thing that Jesus draws attention to before he leaves the temple on this incredibly momentous day. He would not return to the temple again. He would not, it, it is a huge thing. So for him to draw attention to this is, is important, I think. And I think it is because this lady personifies everything 
that Jesus has just taught them for the whole day. So let's read it. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins with only a few cents. Calling his his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So there's two things here. It's this lady, and there's also the fact that Jesus himself would in two days' time put in everything that he is and has into the treasury of God when he would give his life as a ransom for all of us. But with this lady, Jesus is not saying that to serve me wholeheartedly means you've got to give me your very last cent. It's not what is being taught here. He's teaching about the heart attitude of this woman and what is behind it. Why could she do that to the very end of her means? It is because this lady is a personification of somebody who knew the inscription of God on her life, his image on her life. She has surrendered her life to him. She knows the scriptures. She knows that the word of God says that that he will take care of the widow and the orphan. She knows the power of God, that no matter what the circumstances look like, God can do whatever. She knows that he has got all authority and she has seated him in the highest place of authority of her life. She knows everything that Yahweh stands for and she loves him with her total being, with everything to her very last means of life. That's what she personifies and I think that's why Jesus brings attention to this lady as an example of what it would mean for us and what he desires of us to wholeheartedly love and serve him and give our absolute all to him. Manol, can I ask you to come up and abandon? So friends, I think that as we do this closing song now, I'd love for us to make it a song of response to God. I've asked him to actually put a picture in the middle here of of the one, this one, who would in two days from this account offer up his life as a ransom for us. One who would put his all into the treasury of God for us. And he is asking us for a whole being love and adoration. And I think he is worthy of it all. I think he is worthy of our, of our absolute every bit of energy to get to know him, to pursue him, to know him with, with all of my being, all my intellect, all my ability to search things out and truths in the word of God so that I can not just say I love him half-heartedly, but love him with everything I know, love every aspect of it, and in that experience his power and his truth. So won't you stand? So Lord, you are so much more, God. 
Jesus, you are so much more. I could never do justice to how glorious you are. What an incredible gift you've given us of your very life. What an incredible opportunity to, to, to have a response of love towards you, a wholehearted, whole being, whole strength, whole energy, whole soul, everything. Love of you. Won't you help us, God? Won't you, won't you put these things in our hearts, even this image of you, Jesus, beaten, bruised, ripped, shredded to pieces for us to display your incredible love and pursuit of us. Says David said that your loving kindness, your covenantal faithfulness will pursue us all the days of our lives. See in Hosea how you would come back and then back again and all you want is, is a response of love towards you, God. But it's true that you said our love is to be, our, our faith is to be simple, but it means it's not a faith earned, but a faith, Lord, nevertheless, of, 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 of all our faculties full, not meritless, but, I mean, not mindless, but meritless, Lord, but full, our, every intention to love you. So I pray, God, grip our hearts once again and, and receive our love and adoration. Receive this song as a prayer, Lord, and would you continue to minister to us, God, I pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit.